Good morning, Genesis Church. Um, this morning we're going to be in Ruth chapter 2. Um, so go ahead and grab your Bibles out, your phone app, whatever you may have. will be in the ESV version of the Bible. And if you're using one of the Bibles at the end of the rows, uh, supplied all throughout the building, um, we will be on page 247. Um, if you don't have a Bible at home that you're comfortable reading with and you would like to take one of those home with you, you are more than welcome to have one. They are our gift to you. Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Abimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaths after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now, listen, my daughter, do not, go to the glean in, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let, their, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward will be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants." And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaths, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and then it was about an ephah of barley. And then she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and, and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forgotten the living or the dead. And Naomi said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived 
with her mother-in-law. This is the, the word of the Lord. Amen. We had a great day yesterday. Uh, yesterday was our Gift of Love Christmas store. We got that last count I heard was six, 15, 16 or 17 families that we served yesterday. Um, and a great crew of elves that did a ton of work. So just real quick, uh, if, if, you were, like, if you showed up yesterday or Friday night to help us with that event, just give me a quick wave. Man, it, it was so many people in our church and we were so thankful. What a great day. And uh, kind of the, the pinnacle for me was, uh, we have these people called Secret Shoppers. If, if, if you're not familiar with what we're doing, we're just loving people who are in our, our region by providing um, families who have kids an opportunity to, to uh, get some Christmas gifts for them at a really reduced cost. We also give them a basket full of all kinds of goodies and things that'll help, uh, that are designed to help them with their um, you know, household stuff and things like that. And so uh, what, what we were able to do yesterday is, is serve them. And the pinnacle for me was watching one of our, our secret shoppers um, who uh, was uh, um, involved with this and who was like walking a family through this event uh, and, and looking over and seeing this, this shopper and a couple of our other, uh, other of our people standing with a, a, a family in a public elementary school praying with them. It, 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 was, it was beautiful. And so, what a great day. Thankful for that. Um, we're, we're so glad for those of you who were part of it who gave gifts. Uh, we literally, that, uh, two weeks ago, we said we still have a bunch of tags left. By the end of service, all the tags were gone. We had all the gifts bought. Great day. Thank you. What a, what a, a cool uh, opportunity for us to live out the implications of the love Christ for ha- has for us in our city. Um, our family, uh, like our traditions, our Christmas traditions run really deep. We have all kinds of things. It even runs down to the fact that we have a very specific pecking order for our movies, okay? Uh, we, we start with Home Alone. Actually, we start with Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, which is a Thanksgiving movie, and then we move into the, you know, the different movies. And, and it's not just that we have all these Christmas movies we want to see. It's that there's a very specific order that ends with, on Christmas Eve night, after We've done all the stuff, our, our service, all this. Our family sits down and watches watch Christmas vacation. And then we turn on TBS and TNT on Christmas Day. And a Christmas story, you'll shoot your eye out, is just playing all day long. And so we see like it in, in parts. We see the whole movie in parts. It's, it's like it's part of what we do. Uh, last night we watched Narnia, uh, you know, and, and enjoyed Christmas coming to the C.S. Lewis world of Narnia. Uh, but it's just part of our family. What we don't have in any of these to be honest with you, is a single Hallmark movie. Uh, the Hubbards are not a Hallmark movie family. Some of you started watching Hallmark movies, Christmas movies in, in, uh, this, uh, in July and have not stopped since then. Um, and so uh, we, we've had some fun this holiday season in our Advent series uh, playing off the Hallmark movie idea. In fact, you can see uh, Genesis Presents Ruthless, a Hallmark Christmas story. Because the beauty of this story that we're reading, if you're you're familiar with it, you know this. If you're not, stay with us and read through it. There is something really hallmarky about the Ruth story. Uh, About a a woman who's an outsider, who's stuck with her mother-in-law, but stuck because she loves her, is loyal to her, but ends up coming as an outsider into uh, Bethlehem where uh, she is not going to be liked. She's not going to be cared for. She's an outsider. And somehow God providing, you know, this, uh, you know, maybe, maybe a Hallmark hot dude named Boaz 
uh, somebody in our church, they said their kids raised that question. I wonder if Boaz was Hallmark hot. I was like, I don't know. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> bottom line is, is it ends up being a really beautiful love story that is connected to this. I, I was laughing this uh, week. I was reading my social media, and I saw a guy post a story. He said he was watching a, a Hallmark movie, sitting in his chair, watching a Hallmark movie, and he dozed off, and he fell asleep. He had no idea how long he slept, but he woke up, and he was still watching a Hallmark movie, except he had slept long enough that he fell asleep halfway through one Hallmark movie and woke up in... Uh, halfway through another Hallmark movie, and he said it took him 20 minutes to figure out he was watching a different movie. So there you go, Hallmark. But we, we've had a lot of fun. Our creative team saw something in this that would draw us into this, uh, and, and so we're having uh, a little bit of fun talking about Hallmark movies. And if you're a Hallmark movie fan, this fits. It fits the story arc, right? And, and so uh, as we're doing this, we're also reminding ourselves, though, that no story in the Bible is just a random love story. That there's always something going on in the stories of the Bible that connects to something way grander than this story. And so while Ruth is a beautiful love story, and we should enjoy that, we should be drawn into it, we should picture it in our heads, we should see the beauty of how God uh, provides this relationship, and they they, like it's, it's a beautiful love story that, quote unquote, saves Christmas, you know, uh, it, although it's before Christmas, but it actually does save Christmas. Because if you're familiar, you know that this couple that arises out of this story are, are in the line of the birth of the great King David, who then becomes the prototype for the great King Jesus, who comes from his family. It, it, that, that's happening in the story. And so, uh, what happened, like, is we're reading these Bible narratives. Like, most of the Bible is told in story form. The majority of, of your scriptures, when you dive into the Bible, is telling you these stories. And they all seem like from different cultures and ancient worlds, and there's so much that's hard to find. And, and it's good to get wrapped up in the characters and see what's happening in the life of David or, or Solomon or uh, Daniel or whoever you're reading. In our case, Ruth and Boaz and and uh, this family. But there is always something going on, and this is how you should read the Bible. There's something going on in the story that connects that story to the grand story. And therefore, there's something happening in every story that is going to connect us to our need for and the beauty of our true Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And this chapter we are in, we read it through Western American eyes we will miss most of what's happening. There is embedded in this chapter stuff that if you were an a, uh, ancient Israelite, you would read it and you would see it so clearly. My task this morning is to get us like in steps Boaz. And what we see is the hallmark hot dude, right? Maybe, you know, this guy who's gonna step in and, you know, we know that's gonna end up in a love story and he enter character. But as the Bible's giving the framework, as the Bible's giving us this narrative, it is taking us way beyond just, here comes Boaz. And there are these incredible clues and hints to, to something that is happening in the entrance of Boaz that is designed to lift our chin and see the whole story. And the story is the God who redeems, the God who rescues us. And the way he does it over and over again in the Old Testament narratives is that we see the people in a hopeless situation 
who deserve God's justice and deserve the place they're in. And out of nowhere, God raises a rescuer. And every time we see a rescuer, what we want to do is we want to turn that guy, that, that woman, that person, that judge, that king, into a moral tale so they become like Aesop's fables. And so it's very easy to read this and see in Boaz, oh, here's a guy, we should be like Boaz. That is never the point. God is telling us how he redeems his people. And they all paint pictures of his ultimate redemption. It, it is so embedded in this story. My task is to help you see it this morning, okay? To show you how the entrance of Boaz. So our story so far, we have this, this, uh, this family or this couple named Elimelech and um, Naomi who are uh, in a time of famine and they leave Bethlehem, their hometown. They leave their family land. They leave their family clan and they go on a trip to Moab. Now, if you were reading this through uh, Hebrew eyes, immediately you would say, nothing of this is good. It's not good. That The reason the, the uh, famine has come is because it's during the period of the, the judges and Israel is running away from their God and God is not giving them all the blessings that he has promised in a way to beckon them back to himself. But instead of running back to God and crying out to him in repentance, they leave their homeland and they go to Moab. And while they're there, uh, Elimelech, whose name literally means God is my king, but he doesn't act like it, dies. And she's left as a widow, but she has two sons. And those two sons, they'll marry Moabite women, which is also forbidden in the scripture. The whole first chapter shows us that uh, this family is walking the same path as the whole story of Judges. I'll come back to that in a minute. But the outcome is that uh, they are not only not like, like married to foreign women, but for 10 years there are no children, which again, children are a blessing of the Lord. And then the sons die. And you end up with these three women who are all widows, who have no sons, no way to, to link into the family story. Two of these women are actually not from Israel. They're not part of God's people. The daughters-in-law of Naomi are, are um, not going to be accepted if they come back with her. They first of all attach themselves to Naomi. She says, I'm going, I've heard there's food. I'm going back. The blessing of God at least to care for the needs of the people is returning. And so she starts to travel back to, to Bethlehem. Um, both daughter-in-law say, I'm going to go. One of them's named Orpah. Uh, she um, clings, and then we have Ruth who clings. But then she says, no, I, you don't understand. There's no way I, like my clan can provide a husband for you. There's no hope for you to remarry and to actually have a family that will provide for you in your old age. Now, you've got to understand, at this point in time, a woman who was a widow, her social security was having sons who could keep working the family land. That's that. That's the only way from being a beggar and completely destitute. She knows this, and she's like, if you come with me, we're going to be three women, not just one woman who has to figure out how to feed ourselves and take care of ourselves. And so they're in this utter brokenness. And last week, Eric preached this so amazingly. In fact, after the sermon, uh, one of our other church members, we were talking, and he's like, man, that's the best sermon I've ever heard in this church. And so I was, I was like, that's fantastic. Eric, I hope you, you did a great job. I hope you enjoyed your last sermon here. Uh, <clears throat> it, it was fantastic. So if you didn't hear it, go back and listen. He, he walked through this text to show the glory of the gospel. But what we do is we end up with, with Orpah who says, okay, I'm going home. And what she did is she left there and then she started a talk show and she ended up with her own network. 
Sorry. That's an Oprah joke if you missed it, okay? Uh, but but uh, Ruth clings to her mother-in-law and has this beautiful conversion. Where you go, I will go. Where you say, I will say. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And if you understand this, that is all the language of covenant that we find in the Bible where God says, I will be your people and you will be my God. She is attaching herself not just to her mother-in-law. She is saying, the one true and living God, the God of Israel, is now my Redeemer, my Savior, my God. But they come back to Bethlehem, and as they come back to Bethlehem, Naomi says, listen, I'm not Naomi anymore. My name is Mara. It is bitter. It is, it is brokenness. Um, and so here they walk back into Bethlehem. The family, her clan, the people who know Naomi from, you know, 20 years ago, all run up and start hugging her. But there are two things that happen in this moment that, that we're supposed to notice. And the first is the fact that her response, Naomi's response, is bitterness. She's like down to her name. She's saying, listen, I'm going to tell you, I have a new identity, and that identity is, is bitterness. I want you to call me that. That's my name. My, my name used to mean pleasant. Now I'm going to go by Mara. It's bitter. We, we have a family in our church that is from the Middle East, and they, they, they speak Middle Eastern language. And he told me last week that to this day, if he takes a bite of something and it tastes bitter, he goes, oh, Mara. You know, it, it, bitter. And this is, she's saying, this is who I am now. My identity is Mara. And then the other thing you ought to notice is that nobody from the city acknowledges Ruth. She's a nobody. We will see it in te text. She is a Moabite. And there's probably these looks at Naomi going, why did you bring this woman back to you? She doesn't belong here. And that's how chapter one ends. And, and what we're to see here is there's some major problems that are not just for these women. They are major problems that bring God's character into question. The one true and living God who makes covenant with his people, who gives him his covenant love, who never goes back on his word, who is there to provide and there to care. There are three major problems that show up in this story that not only are, are about Naomi and Ruth, they are about the character of God. And this is what happened. The, the, this chapter starts to answer these three problems. And if you don't know these three problems, you're going to miss the big idea in Ruth. First problem is a personal problem. That you have these two women, one who has bound herself as an outsider but has become part of the covenant community. She is being excluded by the covenant community even though she is literally saying, I am now a Jew. I am now a Hebrew. This God is my God. And you have her mother-in-law, Naomi, and they are going to live the life of beggars with no hope. They're going to live hand to mouth, day to day, with no hope for any provision other than what ends up starting in this chapter, going and doing what poor people do. How, how is this God going to be faithful and provide for these women? The second big question, second big problem is a family problem. It's a family problem because we have two widows with no sons. Now for us, we live in this culture and we're like, there's so many opportunities and stuff. But in that culture, that was major because this is tying 
specifically Naomi, but also Ruth, to the grand story of Israel. See, what happens to the beautiful story is that God is a rescuing God. He loves his people. We have this great story of his rescue from slavery in the book of Exodus. And God delivers them from slavery. He brings God, them out of slavery to himself. He pours his grace and mercy, and he promises, I will be faithful, and I will never stop loving you. I'm not going to give up. And if you walk under my wings, that, that's part of the illustration that's in this, this story. If, if you were under the, the mama hen's wings, God as a mama, mama bird who's caring for her chicks, if you stay in the nest, if you trust in me, there are blessings and promises and goodness galore. And, and so, from the get-go, they begin to try to leave the nest. They try to walk away from this beautiful, caring God who is for them. But this God had made a promise to their ancestor Abraham that one day he would give them this piece of ground that we know as Israel. It's the same piece of ground that's crazy in our lives today. God promised Abraham, I will give your descendants this piece of ground. And God is going to keep his promises. And so what happens as the storyline goes forward is there's a, two whole books, Joshua and Judges, that tell the story of God's faithfulness to his promise to Abraham as this nation of people who've been rescued by their God are given their homeland. And God gives it to them. Like, like it's his. And the way it works out is he says, conquer it. And then once you conquer it, what's going to happen is there are 12 tribes. These 12 tribes are the descendants of 12 sons from this guy named Jacob that is way earlier in their story. But every Jew knows what tribe they're a part of. Are you from the tribe of Judah? Are you from the tribe of, of uh, uh, you know, the Levi? I mean, every Jewish person, every Hebrew knows which tribe they're a part of. And then inside the tribe, there are clans. The clan is like the people uh, that you do uh, family reunions with, right? That, that's your clan, the extended family. They don't come to Christmas meal, but once or twice a year, you're going to go meet at some park, and there's going to be every there, and you're going to see all these crazy cousins and people. Some of them you're like, oh, great to see you, and some of them just weird you out. Like, that's the clan. And then you have your family. That's the people you do Christmas and Thanksgiving with. Like, and so what happens is God takes every piece of ground in Israel, and he claims ownership. This is my ground, God says. It's not yours. I own this, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to tell every tribe to go to a place in the land, and I'm going to tell every clan, this area is your, now your place to reside, and then every clan is going to have families who then have ownership or have uh, uh, the responsibility to steward certain sections of ground, okay? And so, so a Limelech's family owns property that is there for God's provision. It's how God is caring for them. They raise crops. They, they have animals. They have other things that they can do with the land that help them produce the things that allows them to live under the blessing of God they are cared for. But what's happened in the story? What's happened in the story is that because of the death of these three men and no male heirs, these great and precious promises she is, even Naomi, Ruth definitely, even Naomi is now an outsider looking in to these promises. She is part of God's people, but she is, is outside of the blessings because of what's happened in her life. Her life is bitter. She doesn't see hope for this. And the question that the, that the story is wading into is, 
how can this God ever keep his promises to these women? There's no way for this God to be faithful to them. The third question is a national question, a national problem. And it's connected to the time frame. The very first phrase as you read the book of Ruth is, during the period of the judges. And we read that and go, okay, sets a time frame. It's doing way more than that. See, the judges is this dark sequel. God was faithful in the book of Joshua. He gave him the land. Judges is the dark sequel where one cycle after another, the people of Israel keep moving further and further away from the true and living God, loving him who, back as he loves them, experiencing his blessings. They begin to get mixed in with the cultures around them, embrace the different false gods of these other nations. They begin to get involved in practices that are awful, that would turn our stomach And they are God's people, and they're involved in the sex slave trade. They're involved in all kinds of abuse. There are all kinds of injustice that come from the fact that they are moving further away from God. There is mayhem, murder. Judges is an awful book. Now, it's in God's story because it reminds us of our need for a redeemer. But Judges ends with this statement. It ends with this statement. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There's no king in Israel that everyone did what was right. Now, if you and I are reading this, and we're reading it biblically, holistically, what should we recognize about that statement? Did Israel have, did the Hebrew people, did these people have a king? And the answer is yes. God was always their king. They were a representation of his kingdom. God was their king. But because they had unmoored their lives from God as king, they had become worse and worse. And now there's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Believe me, we can say that about our culture and our country. Man, we are the no king people. And we are now the no king people. Listen, America, there was no king in America. And the truth of the matter is we are now to the point where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Their lack of a king is a massive problem that if God doesn't solve it, they are going to end up shipwrecked and destroyed and lose any sense of blessing as a nation. They're well on their way to that. And in the midst of that story, we have the story of Ruth because what is happening is that this book begins to interact with the question, how can God provide a better king? The whole book is about this. The fact that we get to the person of David is why the book is there. That God, how, how is God going to rescue these people from themselves when they, like, they, they won't look at God as their king and without a human king, they are going to run individually. They're going to shipwreck everything. So you have these three major questions. How can God care for the needs of this, this family? How can they be pulled back into the covenant blessings that God has promised every Hebrew Israelite? And how can, in the midst of this, God actually do something that is rescuing for his people by providing a better king for them than themselves? And we have the same problems. We, we live with our own provision, our own sense of where has God abandoned us. We, we have all these promises, but we live in this state where we feel like, how can God connect us to these promises? I, I don't get how God is going to answer this question. And then we realize, I am my own king. I rule my own life. I stink as my own king, but I, I, I believe in my way I can figure this out, and we need a better king. How is God going to solve these layers of redemption? And what happens into that moment into that moment, these questions are hovering over chapter one, okay? They are there for the Hebrew reader. Into that moment, 
Chapter two, verse one. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man from the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. This is not just a statement. This in the text is the answer for all three of those questions. It's what God, God wants us to lift our chin. Something's happening here. They're just not introducing this Hallmark hot guy who's going to end up marrying Ruth. I mean, that is part of the story. We should enjoy that. But it's something more than that. There is this moment where in walks Boaz. And part of what you have to, like if you read this connected to Judges, you begin to see that he is the polar opposite of anything that exists in Israel at this moment. He's the polar opposite of anything that's going on. And there is something in his story that is glorious and beautiful. And God is being redemptive. And he, God is showing us how he redeems people. And so our goal this morning is just to help you see the beauty of this person in the story. And show us how, he, how this man, Boaz, connects in this story, right here in this text, to the Christmas story. To, to, to God's ultimate faithfulness in providing what this text begins to raise, a kinsman redeemer. So, so I want to share with you three things that this story is showing us about Boaz that we see in the text. It's, it's here, it's in the language of the text that is way deeply seated in Hebrew life that we from our Western eyes just see this really good dude, but it's embedded in the text to show us that God is up to something that is grand and it reaches us today, okay? And the first thing is this, that Boaz, as we look at who Boaz is, uh, we have to understand that Boaz uh, was, was family. He was family. Now, now, look at the text again. Let's just wade through what happens. Verse one, now Naomi, how am I doing? Naomi had a relative of her husband's a worthy man from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite, notice all through the text, it just calling her Ruth the Moabite. It just keeps saying the outsider, the one who doesn't fit in, uh, the one who shouldn't be here, the one who has no rights to anything, is, at least in the way the Hebrews saw themselves. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean, uh, <clears throat> glean among the, the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she had happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. So, so look at what's happening here. Uh, she gets up and she goes, if, if I don't go find us food, we're going to starve. And, and, and there, maybe I could go find leftover grain sitting in fields after the harvesters have come. Now, the previous verse also told us that it was the beginning of the barley harvest. The, the time frame here is mid-April, the beginning of the barley harvest. You have these two grains that they picked in the spring, barley first, then wheat, and at the end, we see both of these come into view. And so it's the beginning of the barley harvest, and she goes, I'm gonna go out, and I'm gonna go try to find us enough grain that's just sitting in the fields that I, when I pick up this grain, this leftover grain that people, the harvesters left in the fields, maybe we can get enough to, to, to provide a meal for tonight and maybe put away a little bit for the next few days. And I will just try to keep doing this. 
And so she goes out and she goes to, to glean. That's what the word glean here means. But this was cut, connected to something bigger. We'll come back to it in just a minute. She goes into the fields and, and, and she starts and she like just randomly goes out and finds a field where there's people harvesting. She's going to get in behind them and try to scoop up anything that they leave. They're like my dogs, you know, my dogs. Anything you drop, here comes my dogs. And if it's on the floor, it's theirs. That's what she's doing. Okay, and so here she is. She walks up, and verse 3, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field. That, that language there in the original language literally says she chanced upon chance to come to Boaz Field. It, it just so happened as, as fate would have it is literally what it's saying. Now, if you've been a Christian long enough, you know that if we come to a passage where the Bible's going, oh, it just so happened. We ought to be like, yeah, something's going on here. This, something cool's about to take place because the Bible knows of no such thing as fate. This idea that random events in the universe control our lives. The Bible keeps pointing us to a sovereign God who's in control of every aspect, every detail of our lives. We sing, have yourself a merry little Christmas. And Judy Garland and Meet Me in St. Louis saying, you know, if the fates allow. And a guy interviewed the, the, the person who wrote this, and it was the fates forever because, you know, Judy Garland sang it and Meet Me in St. Louis. But the guy who wrote it was interviewed by a person who was just asking. He said, my original language was if the Lord allows. But they didn't want to put that in because it felt too religious. Father of Jesus, let me lovingly say, you should never sing that song and sing if fates allow. It's two worldviews. Either there is a God who is sovereign over the events of your life that gives you hope no matter what's going on in your world, no matter what's going on here, you know that God sees you, he loves you, he is for you, and whatever is happening, like he didn't wake up going, whoa, I didn't know that was gonna happen. Or he is sovereignly orchestrating the events of your life for your good and for his glory, and you can trust him even though it may be hard right now. Even though your life may be bitter and broken, God, you are not outside of the view of your God, and he's for you. I remember we had a situation uh, many, many years ago, Heidi and I, as we were wrestling with what to do with her job. And she had gotten, uh, we had had our second child, and she decided that, that the best thing, like wrestling with how do you be a mama and how do you work in the world, and those tensions were, were very real. And she got this involved in what's called job sharing uh, it, it was Rockwood School District. Who knew that they would say, you know what, you can stay home half the day with your child and, and still be a teacher in the district, still keep your job, if you can find somebody who will work with you. And so she took half the day, another teacher took half the day. They were at Baldwin Elementary, which is right up the road from us, really close to where we lived in Baldwin at the time. It was perfect for all that, that like her, her sense of what she wanted to be as a mother and, and how she was navigating life. It, it, it met our needs because as a Guy doing student ministry in a local church. I wasn't getting like big old paychecks. And how do we live in this culture? And like all this stuff that we were wrestling with. And God was gracious to us and gave us this opportunity. But a couple years into it, the lady who she was job sharing with came and said, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore. And here's Heidi going, I, I, I don't want to go back full time yet. I, I still want to do the mother life. I, I, I love what's happening here. It's a blessing to me. It's a blessing to our child. And I agreed with that. And we started praying, but it felt like there was no, no answers. And then she started looking, is there anybody else in all of Rockwood School District who's willing to do this? And it just so happened that she found one 
woman in all the schools in Rockwood School District, and that woman taught at Blevins Elementary. Now, we, we weren't even thinking about church planting. It wasn't even on our radar. That moment in our life, which felt awful, she's either going to stay home and we're not going to be, like, we're not going to be able to afford, she's going to go back to, to working and she's going to go back full time and it's going to affect her heart. One person all of Rockwood. And not only was this person in Rockwood at Blevins and Eureka, where we did church for a long time, she became the single person that we built a relationship who God most used to tell us, go plant a church there. It just so happened. And we, hindsight in the sovereignty of God is 2020. We didn't know what he was doing back then. We do now. We do now. That's what the, the author's trying to show us. It just so happens she goes to Boaz's field. And here's Boaz, and, and the first thing we find out about this guy Boaz is he was family. He was family. It tells us a couple times he was in the clan. He was part of this, this family line uh, that is important. He was family. Uh, what this means is that, that he fits this idea of a kinsman redeemer. He can fit into the things that are necessary to, to actually provide a way out for Naomi and Ruth. See, this is seated in, in the Old Testament, God's law. He's talking about people who end up in, in really hard situations. Whose responsibility is it to care for them? And the Bible never in the Old Testament, now this is not a statement about our systems now, don't hear this. In the Old Testament time, the, the Bible doesn't put the weight of care for broken people and people who have lost their land, who, are in sla- who, who have ended up in slavery, ended up in massive debt, end up being murdered by somebody, it doesn't put the primary weight on the government, it puts primary weight on the family. And, it's, and, and, and the Old Testament book of Levit- Leviticus says, here's this kinsman redeemer, it's your brother, it's your family member who is called to go, and if, if somebody ends up in slavery, they, they were, like, the slavery there was all economic, you were poor, you, you ran out of resources, and you end up having to go into slavery just to eat, and it's your brother's job to go find, pay off your, the, the person who owns you and bring you back to the family. If, if you are in a situation where you lost your, the family land and somebody actually kind of buys it, it's the family's, the brother's job to go to that person and, and get it back in the family because it wasn't yours to sell to begin with. And it's the family's responsibility to go rescue that land. If somebody gets murdered, it's not revenge. You're not to go kill the person, but When blood is there, it's the family, it's the brother's job to go find that killer and bring that person to justice, the kinsman redeemer. And part of it in the Old Testament is that when there's a widow, when there's a widow, the responsibility of family is to make sure somebody in the family who's part of the family, when there's a widow without an heir, without a son who connects them now to the family story, to make sure somebody else in the family marries that widow so that she and her descendants are still connected to the land, the promises, the provision. And, and when it says this, like, we read and go, he's a guy who hangs out at family reunions. That's who this guy is. The Bible's not just saying that. He's saying he, he, he fits the profile of somebody who could be a redeemer. In fact, later it says that. And Naomi flat out says, this guy's our relative. He can be our kinsman redeemer. He, can, he, he fits that. That's the first thing. We find out he is family. The second thing we find out is that he is a faithful 
Israelite. He's a faithful Israelite. Um, as you read the story, as you read the story, you begin to see some things that he is doing that reveal something beautiful about the nature of this man, the, the, the character of this man. But if you read this in light of Judges, you would know that nobody else out there, out here like this guy. Okay, he's it. And, and so, so what happens, like we just got done, before we, we got into Ruth, we, we studied the book of Micah, this Old Testament prophet. And Micah kind of lays it on the line. He's looking at this nation uh, a, 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 several generations later, and he says, here's the deal. Let me tell you what the Lord requires of you. Ma- Micah 6, 8, that you do justice that you love kindness, that you walk humbly with your God. Like that's what it looks like to, to be rescued by your God and live in faithfulness to God's covenant. This is what it looks like in the world. And what you look around is you don't find anybody who is doing justice. You don't find anybody who does anything that is kind. You don't find anybody who's walking humbly with their God at all. They're running to the gods of the other nations that and those guys are turning them into monsters. But here is Boaz, and here's how we see it. He, he is a man who, who walks humbly with his God. In verse four, he's greeting. And it's not just saying, this is how he said, like high five, he's saying, the, the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah God be with you. And, and his workers responded to him by saying, the Lord be with you as well, and bless, may you live in the blessing of God. When he starts interacting with Ruth later in the text, he immediately turns to the blessings of God and the trust in Yahweh, and living under his wings is the hope that Ruth has as a man who walks faithfully with his God. He is a man who is a man who loves kindness. As you read the story, it's embedded all through. He is kind to his workers. He is kind to outsiders. He lifts his eyes and, and he's talking to his foreman, a young man who kind of oversees his crew who's doing the harvest. He's got a whole bunch of people that are helping him with the harvest. He looks at his foreman and goes, who's, who's is this, this girl who's in the field? I haven't seen her. I don't know her. And the man goes, she's that Moabite. Came home with Naomi. He's expecting get her out of my field. But there is a kindness that shows up because he now is representing this, this sort of person that's, that the Bible keeps saying should show up when God's people have experienced grace. And he is the person who's loving the poor, loving the outsider, the, 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 the sojourner. Nay, uh, Ruth is a sojourner. There are multiple passages in the Old Testament where God tells his people, if you get it, if you understand grace, if you understand what's been done for you, then when you have an immigrant in your midst, you're gonna love them. You're gonna care for them. You're gonna make sure their needs are met. But they had become a culture that despised anybody who wasn't part of themselves. But here is Boaz who is kind to her. He, he, he's the guy who has this work crew and in the middle of the day, he is ordering macaroni grill for lunch for everybody. Like, it's, he's not just saying, all right, lunch break. I'll give you an extra five minutes. Go eat your lunch. He's providing the meal for his whole crew. And the text is saying, this is, kind of the, this is the sort of boss he is. You know, imagine you worked at a place and every day you were like, you go to work and you're like, hey, you don't need to worry about bringing your lunch to work. What we're going to do is we're going to order in from the top five restaurants here and we're going to serve you that every day for lunch. And so we're going to all meet at a table. We're going to hang out for an hour. We want to be close. We want to, and, and I'm going to pay for it all. You'd be like, hey, I could work for that guy, right? This is what's going on. He, he, 
He is a person who, who loves kindness, who expresses the glory of God's love to the people he is with, and he is a guy who does justice. The clearest way it shows this is that one of the ways that God commanded for care for the poor and doing justice in their culture was to look at people who own farms, who own land, and said, when it's time for the harvest, here's what you're supposed to do. You harvest your field, but you should leave the corners, the edge rows, a portion of your field you should leave for the poor. They, they then can come into your field and pick food for themselves. They can't provide for themselves. Here's how we're going to provide. You who are wealthier, who have means, provide for the poor by leaving a place for them to come and pick their own food. And if your pickers are picking stuff up and they drop it, don't pick it up. Leave it at ground. So these gleaners, these people who come through, and here's, nobody's doing this. Nobody. When, when Ruth leaves, Naomi's going, good luck with that. Nobody around here does that. And she ends up in a field of somebody who's left at Endros, who has his, far, his harvesters going through the field. And Ruth is going through. He is revealing himself to be a true and faithful Israelite. He is a person who has received mercy and has become a conduit of that mercy by the way he lives, his faithfulness to God, his kindness, his justice. A Hebrew, a Jewish person would read this and go, that's what it's supposed to look like, and nobody does. And there's something really important in that. He is a faithful Israelite. Third thing is in this story, is that he is a man of favor. Ruth leaves and says, I, I, I'm hoping to find somebody who will give me favor. And then twice in the story when she communicates with them, she looks and goes, why? Verse 10, why have I found favor in your eyes? Verse uh, 12, she acknowledges again, I found favor. See, the word favor literally means grace. It means mercy and grace. It means him treating her not as she deserved, but in kindness and love and mercy. And what you have here is, is this man who is a family member, but she doesn't know that yet, who is a true and faithful Hebrew who is giving her kindness mercy, and grace. Why is he doing that? Because he's a person who's received that. He gets it. See, this is what ought to happen in our lives when we understand what Christ has done for us. It should turn us into people who are people of mercy, people of grace, people of compassion, people of love. And this is what's going on in the story. He is this guy. He, he cares for her needs. He tells her, hey, listen, you come and glean in my fields every day. Don't go to any other field. You come glean it here. Don't leave my fields. I'm going to command my, my foreman and my guys to make sure that nobody touches you. Here's a little hint in the story. Multiple times in the story, there is great fear that Ruth, this single woman, is going to get sexually molested and abused in the fields. And Boaz stands up and says, it won't happen in my field. I'm going to defend you. I've told my men to keep their hands off of you and keep their mouths shut. They're not to tease you for being a Moabite. I'm going to take care of you. He, he, like he loves her and, and protects her. He, he, he provides an, uh, a means for her to now take care of her needs so that she can pick from his field every day. And, but like what happens in the story is she actually, first day of working for him, goes home with a, a 30-pound bag of barley that's not enough for a day. That's enough for weeks of food for she and her mother-in-law. A 30-pound bag, three-fifths of a bushel of barley she goes home with on day one. And then he invites her to his table. 
So the provision is, she, he's protecting her, he's caring for her, he's loving her. her. Her provision is way beyond what she imagined when she left that morning. And now, in the middle of the day, he goes, come to my table, come eat with me. He invites this outsider to his table. Like, those of us who are Christians are going, oh, I, I see it. I, I get what's going on here. This is what God has done for us, right? He is the kinsman redeemer. So here's Boaz. He shines in the text. He shines because there's nobody else like him. Now, he is a sinner who is saved by grace. He is like, he's not the hero of the ultimate story. But here, this text wants us to see the beauty of Boaz who pours his kindness and his mercy into their lives. And what happens is she comes home with her big old bag. She, she got lunch. And I love the picture of lunch. It's like macaroni grill. Like they're sitting there and there's so much to eat. They're eating. It's, it's like, you know, you ever been there and you, if, if you've eaten at this place where, uh, no, no I'm, what's the name of the place? I got the wrong place. Maggiano's. I got the wrong place. Maggiano's where you walk in and they're like, buy one meal, take one home. Like, I don't even have to wait for the to-go box. They're going to cook the to-go box for me while I'm eating. She goes home with a giant to-go box that is a meal for her mother-in-law when she gets home. She, you know, they're, they're putting the, the, the table, they're putting the, 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 the thing in front of you. With the, they bring the bread and you know, they're pouring oil and wine and, and, and the mix, you know, Parmesan cheese, and you're dipping your bread. Like, so it's not just all dry, but it's this beautiful, rich flavor. Like, that's the picture of what's happening at this table. And then he has shown her kindness. And, and Ruth shows up in the story. She comes home to her mother-in-law, whose whole identity is bitter. And the whole story turns on a dime because Boaz entered the story. May, may, may the God who, who blesses us bless this man because he has shown us kindness. Look very specifically at this one verse in this. Down here in verse. Uh, verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Whose kindness, whose kindness has not. That word kindness is this crazy, crazy, beautiful Hebrew word. We've talked about it here a lot. That word for kindness right there is the Hebrew word chesed. It is God's covenant, faithful, never giving up, always being, being true to his promises. He will not give up on his people. He is going to love them and pursue them. And, and here's what she says. May Boaz be blessed because his kindness, whose is the question? Is it God's chesed, God's love, or Boaz, and the reason it's worded in this way where you don't know is because the answer is yes. How has God shown his love to Ruth and Naomi? Through the conduit of Boaz. Now, now we read this. What do we do with this? The answer is we, we got to know, like we got to wrestle with this. What's going on here? This is how God rescues his people. He raises a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. The rest of the story is going to tell us how that works out. We're not to that point right now. Like the, this, this chapter actually ends on a down note. She went home and lived with her mother-in-law. Nobody's going, woo, that's fun, right? You know, the story's not over. But the interest of the person raises the beauty of this person. And, and, and we come and we're like, Part of the story is that this, the family tree of this Boaz with Ruth is going to get us to King David, who's going to lead us to a son of David. 
where angels proclaimed his birth. They end up, Joseph and Mary end up in Bethlehem. Why? Because they're the house and lineage of David. But he is our true and better kinsman redeemer. He is the God of this universe who took on flesh and became our brother. He became one of us. He came near in relationship who is really the perfect, the only perfect faithful Israelite who was full of grace and truth. Here's Jesus. Like The Bible is just painting a picture of how God saves. His ultimate salvation is somebody who is a better version of Boaz than Boaz is. And we're here today, and that is our hope. It's why this is a great Advent series. Because it's lifting our chin to see why the birth of Jesus is so glorious. Because we have the same problems. We, we have no king, and we've wrecked our lives. We are outside of the blessings of God that he has promised. And in some way, every one of us is in here destitute, poor, and outcast. And in Christ, God has invited you to his table. He has prepared a meal for us. He is beckoning you to come. In Christ, we have a better redeemer who is our hope. That's what this story is about. That's what chapter two, Boaz is the hero of the story, but because of who he pictures, he's not the ultimate hero of the story. And we should see the beauty in this and lift our eyes to see the beauty of a better savior. Boaz becomes, here's connecting the dot. I raised three questions. How will God give them a king? How will God include these two women in his covenant promises? How will God provide for their needs? All three of those questions bring the faithfulness of God into question in the story. And the answer is that God sends Boaz. Well, how is God going to be that for you? Our answer is that God sent Jesus. And what that should do for us is, first of all, lead us to trust him. Hold on to him. Believe this is how God is going to provide for his promises, his blessings in your life. But you know what it'll do as well? If we truly get the gospel and understand the gospel, our lives will start looking more like Boaz to the world around us, to each other. Like it, it will change us to become more like Jesus and therefore we'll look more like what Boaz was in his time. We'll be people of justice and mercy and kindness and compassion. We, we will hold on and walk with Jesus. I mean, it will become who we are. Every word in the Bible is about the gospel of Jesus. And leads us there. And this story does that. May we find his beauty in that. Now, as I close my time, part of what we do all Christmas season long is we also point you to one way to actually live out the implications of our faith is to be generous at Christmas with an offering that we take up that, is th- that every dime of it goes, every penny of it goes to our international partners. So we, we support the International Mission Board. We support um, an organization that builds wells in places that have no water. We also have two families are, that, that actually we partner with and support. Uh, and one of those families are Nick and Lorraine Mosca. They are part of our church. They spent time with us this last, uh, last year uh, in our faith community. 
They're back in Papua New Guinea. He is an airline pilot uh, who, who cares for, does medical missions. And part of our resources for the Advent Conspiracy Offering goes to him. They've got a, they made a video for us for this. Um, and so my challenge to you is that, that as you watch this, pray about how you can be generous at Christmas during this holiday season to help the gospel and care for people to the nations because that's what we're doing with this offering. So check out this video, uh, and then the band's going to come up here, and we're going to sing to Jesus, all right?